In the name of heaven, Catiline, how long will you exploit our patience? How long did you really suppose your madness would elude us? Are there to be no limits to this audacious, unbridled swaggering? Look at the garrison of our Roman nation which guards the Palatine by night. Look at the patrols ranging the city, the whole population gripped by terror, the entire body of loyal citizens massing at one single spot. Look at our Senate meeting here behind wartime fortifications. See the expressions on every face of all the men present. Have none of these sights made the smallest impact on your heart? You must be well aware that your plot has been detected. Now that every single person in this place knows all about your conspiracy, you cannot fail to realize it is doomed. Do you suppose there is a single man here who does not have full information about what you were doing last night and the night before, where you went, the men you summoned, the plans you concocted? What times? What morals? The Senate knows about all these things. The consul sees them being done, and yet this man still lives. That is Cicero at his most strenuous. So, friend, have you ever been present for a character assassination? I hope it hasn't happened to you or anyone that you care about. It is possible to recover, but Catiline did not. I'm Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the greatest biographies ever written, the ancient collection known as Plutarch's Lives. This is part two of a three-part detour, a detour from our grand Visions of Caesar series that I'm planning, but this is a detour that will get us where we want to go eventually, because it's about a conspiracy that rocked Rome, one of the most famous conspiracies in history, and it intimately involves four of the biographies that we're going to tell very shortly. And this conspiracy, the Catalinarian conspiracy, it made one man's career, and in a way it certainly ruined the careers of many others, and maybe that was just, some at the time thought it was not just, and many others still think that, and we'll get there. But the man whose career it made was Cicero, who we just heard from, the great Roman orator, and we'll tell his full biography soon. He's one of Plutarch's subjects. In this episode, I want to zoom in with you on the story of a single speech he made, possibly his most famous speech and most often quoted. It's the speech against Catiline, number one. There were four in total, and this is the most famous one. And it's famous because, in a way, it marked the crisis point, the most crucial, decisive moment of the entire conspiracy Often, you know, in history, the real actions are decided. They happen behind the scenes. And there's private deals going on behind closed doors. Sometimes the real decision points happen on battlefields. But every now and then, words completely change the dynamic. And this is one of those cases. Everything hinged on this speech. There was plenty of other stuff, that other kind of stuff, the you know, backroom stuff happening behind the scenes in this conspiracy situation, of course. Deals being made, I'm sure. But here, the speech really was what did it, as we'll see. 
So we'll talk about the background a little bit and then read some of the best passages. And there are a lot of lessons in here on how to get group opinion on your side, how to thwart a conspiracy or a plot against your interests at least, how to get people's attention in a crucial moment and keep it. But let's get into it. So just to jog your memory, it's a good idea to have listened to the last episode at some point, Catiline 1, but in case it's not fresh, I'll, I'll refresh you here. So Cicero is one of the consuls for the year at Rome, one of the two consuls, and the politician Catiline has been plotting something. There are rumors going around town in Rome, plans to make a coup, to set fire to the city. And there's also news that has been coming in of an enemy army, well, an army in Etruria being gathered. That's Tuscany. It's just a few days northwest of Rome. And it's not really clear at this point what these people are planning, these people who are gathering these, this army. And the Senate has gone ahead and declared a state of emergency a few days prior to this. This declaration invests the consuls with supreme authority to do whatever it takes to save the state. It's often called the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, the sort of last result edict of the Senate. But it's kind of like martial law. Martial law has been declared. That empowers the consuls to do extraordinary things. But still, you know, we're in this situation where there's fog of war. And like I said, it's not really known publicly what this army in Tuscany's intentions are, who they're connected with. Despite the signs, there's still a lot of skeptics in the Senate who are saying things like, well, isn't this all getting a little out of hand? I mean, Catiline's one of us. This sort of thing, this whole conspiracy nonsense, this doesn't happen in the Roman Republic. We're a stable state. So obviously Cicero thinks Catiline is behind all of this, but you, you got to think, if you're Cicero, how do you prove that? And certainly Catiline is not acting alone. So if you arrest him, do you really save the city and yourself from danger? So here's what happens that allows Cicero to take control of the situation and what he decides to do. On the night of November 6th, Catiline meets with his fellow conspirators secretly. And uh, Cicero hears about this from a mole. He's got a mole. You, you recall this guy named Curius. And uh, he had a mistress that Cicero somehow got to, Fulvia. And so Curius has been turned. And he, through his mistress, Fulvia, he's sort of feeding messages to Cicero about the conspiracy. And so what Cicero finds out is Catiline, at this meeting, declares that he intends to leave the city to join up and take control of this army that he's being have having he's having raised for him in Tuscany but for their plan to work he says they need to assassinate the consul Cicero you might remember from last episode but the other consul is Antonius and Catiline is friends with Antonius this is Mark Antony's uh, uncle and Catiline is hoping that this guy Antonius, this other consul, is going to join their cause, especially if Cicero's out of the picture. So he's got a lot of hopes. And, and so the next day, November 7th, early in the morning after this meeting, two men show up at Cicero's house. It's right on the Palatine Hill, right in the center of everything. Early in the morning, 
these two guys ask to see Cicero and pay their respects. But Cicero is ready for them because he knows, his mole has told him, that these two guys are basically hitmen. And he's doubled his guards at the house. And there's some shouting and shoving at the doorway. And the men, you know, they insist, oh, we want to see our good friend Cicero. But the guards say, no, no, he's indisposed. And they insist too. And so the hitmen leave. But that day, Cicero calls a meeting of the Senate for the next day. The Senate doesn't just meet regularly. It has to be summoned, has to be called to order. And it's the duty and the right of the consuls and the consuls alone to do that. And so uh, the consuls also get to choose the location where the Senate meets. They have an official building, an official Senate house. It's called the Curia. But very often they meet in other places for whatever reason. But this Curia even though they have this official place. It's a big building. It's got multiple entrances. It's kind of exposed. It's right off of the forum. And Cicero, he wants to emphasize the danger that the city and especially the Senate is in. And so he calls the Senate to meet in a different place in the temple of Jupiter Stator, which is Jupiter, the stopper of armies. And that's a smaller temple. It's right next to where the Arch of Titus is now in Rome. It's sort of near the forum, but... Uh, kind of on the Palatine Hill. And, and the point is, it's more defensible. It's, um, he calls it a munitissimus locus, a very, uh, in that passage we just heard, this wartime fortification. So it's a highly fortified place, in his words. But and it, it is more defensible. And he also calls a guard of Roman equestrians, under, just men under arms, upstanding, you know, prominent citizens under arms, to physically guard the temple while the Senate meets on that next day, on November 8th. So that's the context. That's the lead-up to the speech. And kind of amazingly, when the Senate meets, Catiline himself comes too. He's there to clear his name. He's there to tell the Senate, this is all crazy talk. Cicero's been spreading. This is all nonsense. He's there to clear his name. Now, on this day, Cicero has a few options here politically. He can legally have Catiline executed. I mean, he can do that. It's martial law, remember. Uh, that would be a very, very uh, risky move. He can have Catiline arrested, order him to go into exile. He can have the Senate vote to send Catiline into exile, potentially. And all of these have different implications politically. Um, you know, the whole execution option, I mean, if you execute a Roman citizen, first of all, you know, Roman citizens aren't supposed to be even subject to capital, uh, to, to corporal punishment, much less capital punishment. The typical, uh, punishment is exile. But if you, if you do that to a Roman citizen without trial, when the evidence is still hazy, what is that going to mean for Cicero? After he lays down his consular authority, what's that going to mean for, for the rest of his career? And so on and so on. Uh, if he commands him by his consular authority to go into exile, if he says, Catiline, I order you to go into exile, again, without trial or without evidence, I mean, it could have a kind of similar effect. You could actually make Catiline seem like the victim here. So he's, got, he's kind of on a razor's edge here. What he decides to do with this speech is to try to persuade Catiline to leave the city voluntarily. 
That's the object of the speech, one object, and we'll talk about other aspects of it. So I'm going to read for you the, the famous opening of the speech again. Remember, Catiline, as he walks into the Senate, doesn't know there's a mole. And the Senate as a whole doesn't know either. They don't know how much Cicero knows. Maybe a few of Cicero's friends do. So think about what it would be like to hear this as you're plotting a secret coup. You're there to clear your name. And here's what Cicero says. He says, In the name of heaven, Catiline, how long will you exploit our patience? How long did you really suppose your madness would elude us? Are there to be no limits to this audacious, unbridled, swaggering? Look at the garrison of our Roman nation which surrounds the Palatine by night. Look at the patrols ranging the city, the whole population gripped by terror. The entire body of loyal citizens massing at one single spot. He's got the equestrians outside, remember, this guard. Look at our Senate meeting here, but behind wartime fortifications, this munitissimus locus. See the expressions on every face of all the men present. Have none of these sights made the smallest impact on your heart. You must be well aware that your plot has been detected. Now that every single person in this place knows all about your conspiracy, you cannot fail to realize it is doomed. And here he, here he goes with the bomb here. Do you suppose there is a single man here who does not have full information about what you were doing last night and the night before, where you went, the men you summoned, the plans you concocted? And here's a famous line. What times, what morals? The Senate knows all about these things. The consul sees them being done. And yet this man still lives. And... I'm uh, reading Michael Grant's translation, by the way, there. I've modified it in a few places. That's a good translation. It's from the Penguin edition. And so at the beginning here, I think the message is clear, right from the very first sentence. How long, Catiline, how long are you going to stay here? It's the key message of the whole speech. So he really, really exploits it here, and he, and he plays up this sense of shock, how is this man sitting here alive among us right now, considering what he's done, what we all know? And before I go on, I, I want to read for you the Latin. You could skip it if you want. It, it'll be shorter, actually. The Latin is more kind of coiled up and compressed than the English. But I want to read it for you so you can just hear the rhythm and maybe a little bit of the energy of the original. Cicero was famous for his prose rhythm, among other things. So here it is. Some of the most famous Latin ever penned, by the way. Quousque tanda butere Catilina patientia nostra, quam diu etiam furoriste tuus nos eludet, quem ad finem seise frenata iactabit audacia, nil ne te nocturnum praesidium palati, nil urbis vigiliae, nil timor populi, nil concursus bonorum omnium, nil hic munitissimus habendi senatus locus, nihil horum ora voltusque moverunt. Patere tua concilia non sentis, constrictam iam horum omnium scientia teneri coniurationem tuam non vides. Quid proxima, quid superiore nocte egeris, ubi fueris, quos convocaveris, quid consili caperis, quem nostrum ignorare arbitraris, 
O tempora, O mores. Senatus haec intelligit, consul videt, hic tamen vivit. O tempora, O mores. It's the famous line, what times, what morals. And his point here with that line is, isn't it amazing? Despite all we know, we let you now live. We have gotten soft in our times. Our morals have gotten soft. We, we modern Romans have softened from our ancient discipline when we used to punish traitors severely and immediately. So he gets into it pretty quickly in that tone and uh, he proceeds on a little further. He brings up a number of examples of the old style of Roman punishments of revolutionaries. And this passage here is um, pretty interesting. He brings up the Gracchi, the Gracchi, uh, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus from... Uh, couple generations earlier who used the office of tribune to try to redistribute wealth in a very populist way. And the Senate responded by basically starting a riot and having them murdered in the streets in the violence. And um, in this passage, it's apparent that Catiline isn't the only person he's trying to persuade in this speech. I mean, he's also trying to persuade the senators of something too. And, and we'll get to that. But here he is. It is upon yourself that the fate which you have long been planning for all of us ought to be visited, namely to be killed like you wanted to kill us. Publius Scipio, that's Scipio Nasica, the guy who led the riot, and he's, he's explaining what Scipio Nasica did. Publius Scipio, a man of distinction and the chief pontiff, was a private citizen. He wasn't holding office, that is. He was a private citizen when he killed Tiberius Gracchus even though he was not seriously undermining the constitution of the Republic. Shall we, the consuls, then, tolerate Catiline, whose aim it is to carry fire and sword throughout the whole world? I pass over precedents that are too old. The fact that Gaius Servius Ser Servilius Ahala killed Spurius Milius with his own hand when Milius was planning revolution. That was hundreds of years ago, a famous kind of Roman myth. Gone, gone forever is that valor that used to be found in this republic and caused brave men to suppress a citizen traitor with keener punishment than the most bitter foe. So I think that's interesting. He, he's handling a historical example there, the Gracchi, that there are actually still pretty divergent opinions on in his day. The Gracchi, you know, some people really still admire the Gracchi, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus who were murdered in the streets of Rome. And he, he doesn't say Gracchus was evil, uh, but he says this is an, ex an example of extremely stern discipline of the old-fashioned Romans. You know, Gracchus was maybe a decent man, but he crossed a line and the Senate, you know, reacted the way they did. Consider the line that you've crossed, Catiline, by trying to overthrow the state. Oh, how far have we fallen? And uh, he goes on with some more examples. He talks about Gaius Gracchus, Tiberius' brother, who was killed on just a very vague suspicion of treason. And there are other famous examples that we've covered in the Cost of Glory podcast, the supposedly revolutionary riot of Saturninus and Glaucia. That's in the life of Marius. Now, there was a violent crackdown in the city then, and men died without trial. And Cicero explains, isn't it amazing, he says, we have a decree of the Senate like theirs, 
but it is locked up with the records like a sword buried in its sheath. He's talking about the martial law decree that was passed on those other occasions. Yet it is a decree under which you, Catiline, ought to have been executed immediately. You still live, and as long as you live, you do not cease your acts of recklessness, but add to their number. It is my wish, gentlemen, to be a man of compassion. It is not my wish to seem easygoing at a time of serious danger for the Republic, but I now condemn myself for my inaction and my negligence. So I think that's, that's kind of the moral background of his position here. He's, he's saying the right thing to do would be to execute you. And so he kind of has to explain why he's not doing that. And he, and he will explain a little longer. And he has to do it in a way that isn't just like, oh, I don't want to take the political risk and stick my neck out. He's got a good reason. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so he explains he won't execute Catiline now. As long as any single person remains bold and bad enough to defend Catiline's innocence, which he thinks is ridiculous, he won't execute Catiline. And then he, he gets back to his message again. Quote, What point is there, Catiline, in your waiting any longer? If night cannot conceal your criminal assemblies in its shadows, nor a private house contain the voices of your conspirators within its walls, if they are all in a blaze of light and exposed to view, take my advice, abandon your scheme, and forget your murder and arson. You are trapped on every side. All your plans are as clear as daylight to us. Let us go through them together. And then he recounts some events where he says, I anticipated you, Catiline. He announced to the Senate a while back that Catiline's associate, Manlius, was gathering troops in Etruria. He got the word out about that before any official report was brought back from eyewitnesses, which then confirmed the news. And then he says there was another attempt by Catiline to seize control of a nearby city, the city of Prineste, and that Cicero thwarted him by sending a garrison of guards. And then, of course, he talks about the night before last. He explains it all to the Senate there. The attempt on his life. He says, I'll even be precise about the location. You met on the street of the scythe makers. And then he says, I see some men in the Senate here, present now, who were present that night. Imagine that moment. The conspirators are sitting among us. Cicero doesn't name them, assuming he even knows who they are. And, and you know, he, he well might. But, I mean, picture if you're one of those other guys who's there, one of these supporters of Catiline. Maybe you're just a friend of Catiline and you, you aren't really in on the plot. You, you sort of know, suspect something's going on. But imagine hearing Cicero say that all of the people that could be implicated in this. So this is a pretty big reveal moment. Cicero, he's been spending a lot of time cultivating these sources of intelligence. And he's saved a lot of this material that he has, this, these damning facts for this speech. And he's putting it all out there right now in this moment. And to make it more plausible here, he gives details of the meeting. He talks about them dividing 
at this meeting the night before last with Catiline and Secret. He talks about the dividing Italy amongst themselves. You know, you're going to take Umbria. I'll take Tuscany. This guy will take Campania as if they already own the place. And he talks about the two guys who volunteered to be hitmen. Imagine hearing all this for the first time in the Senate house, as if you're Catiline, with the entire Senate there listening. Your secret plans, your secret meetings, it's all laid out there. What would it be like to try to keep your composure? And that's the rhetorical power of a sudden, overwhelming deluge of information that you weren't expecting. It's very hard to think on your feet there. There's so many factors. And then Cicero asks him, turns to him and says, why are you silent? Do you deny it? And if you think about it, this puts Catiline in a really difficult position. If he objects, if he says, no, yes, I do deny it, then Cicero's going to ask him, well, what proof can you provide? What Are you going to provide witnesses? I mean, you know, yes, we were meeting, but we were just talking about politics. We were just talking about dot, dot, dot. Well, why was it a secret meeting? He doesn't have any credible alibi. I mean, what's Catalan going to do? Is he going to out fellow conspirators? Is he going to name publicly other people who were at that meeting? If he names men of good reputation, I mean, they're not going to want to be having their names mentioned in the Senate as being in some secret clandestine meeting uh, with all the allegations floating around it. If he, if he names men of bad reputation, that's not going to make his position look very strong in the Senate's eyes. Yikes. So, a little further on, Cicero explains more clearly what his strategy is here, politically. I do not yet, however presume to take the most obvious course, the course most appropriate to the authority of my person and the stern tradition of our ancestors, and I shall therefore act in a way that is more lenient in degree of severity, but more conducive to the common safety. If I give an order for you to be killed, there will remain in the state the rest of the conspirators. But if, as I have long been urging you, you leave the city There will then be drained from it that flood of the state's deadly sewage, your accomplices. So what he's trying to do, he's trying to flush out the rest of the conspirators, to force them out into the open somehow. And that's why he's forbearing to execute the man, he says. And I'll skip a good deal here. Cicero talks about various horrible crimes from Catiline's past, murdering his first wife, illicit affairs. There was that prior attempt to murder Cicero in broad daylight, as he alleged, at the elections when Cicero wore that breastplate. We talked about it last episode. It it all builds a damning picture. And Cicero says, I'll omit all of that. I'm not going to talk about all those things, (laughs) which is a nice trick. If you want to make some innuendo, it's called paralipsis or apophasis. It's basically the idea of bringing up a subject by denying that you should bring it up, which actually emphasizes it as if, oh, it's a really big one, but we won't even talk about that one. So uh, going on here, here's a famous passage that illustrates what Cicero is trying to do, not just with Catiline, but with the Senate as well. Basically, with the Senate, his goal in the speech is he's trying to strip Catiline of all his friends. And 
He's trying to make everyone so embarrassed or you know, horrified to be associated with him in public that Catiline sees more disadvantage than advantage in staying in Rome. So listen to this. I shall speak to you now so as to show you that I feel not the hatred that I ought to feel, but the pity that you do not at all deserve. A short time ago you came into the Senate. Who, out of all that crowd, out of all your many friends and intimates, greeted you? If no one else has received such treatment within the memory of man, are you waiting for condemnation to be voiced aloud? although you have been convicted by the hostile verdict of their silence? What of the fact that at your arrival the seats near you emptied, that the moment you sat down, all the former consuls whom you had repeatedly marked out for death left the seats around you bare and empty? How do you think you ought to feel about that? Heavens above. So Cicero's painting this picture of everybody abandoning him, and... This apparently did really happen on some level, but Cicero really wants to bring that home. And I think this passage burns harder than a lot of the lurid invective and insults of this speech. He says, I don't hate you. I actually feel pity for you. And pity makes someone seem small and contemptible. And that's really effective if you want people to not want to be friends or associate with that person politically. You say, Nobody wants to be that guy's friend. He's, he's a loser. And you can kind of speak that reality into existence sometimes, like here. So a little later on, Cicero anticipates Catiline uh, asking him to put, basically, put, the, put, the, put it to a vote. Put my fate to a vote, to a Senate vote. And uh, maybe on that day, Catiline actually called out and said, let's have a vote. Stop this speech nonsense let's have a vote and you you have to imagine i think on that either way catiline has got to be calling out trying to interrupt him and cicero's got to talk back over him this is typical in ancient courtrooms and in ancient uh, deliberative speeches and assemblies that these speeches in general just require a lot of physical vocal force just force of personality just talking over somebody and, and shouting down your opponents. Um, there's often very raucous crowds in these ancient speeches. So you have to imagine some of that going on. But, you know, Cicero, in, in the text that we have, he's, he's saying, what? You ask that we take a vote. I, and Cicero says, no, no, no. We don't need to take a vote. Look at the senators. They're silent. They stand away from you. And, you know, with all these sudden revelations, you can imagine, even if you were one of the skeptics that were, you know, not sure about all this, or or previously you were disposed in a friendly way toward Catiline, you'd be pretty hesitant at this point to speak up. And Cicero doesn't want to put it to a vote for a few reasons. Specifically, I think the main one is he's trying to give both Catiline and the other senators an impression of unanimity in the Senate. You know, Catiline's a serious man. He's got serious connections from an old family. And you can imagine if Cicero actually puts it to a vote that there's a chance for people who are still on the fence to visibly express some some sort of disapproval or at least hesitation about Cicero's speech and his narrative for whatever reason. 
A vote gives people the option to dissent without much risk. But if there's no vote, then it takes a lot more courage for, say, a single person to speak up. So that's something to consider when you're thinking about taking a vote. So, yeah, Cicero doesn't want to break that illusion of public unanimity. Everyone wants you gone, Catiline. That's got to be the story. And another passage here illustrates the importance of entertainment in Roman oratory. I mean, at every level, from the most casual to the most serious of situations, if you want to keep people's attention, you got to entertain them. But at Rome, you know, this was sort of expected, I guess. Cicero here takes on the persona of the city of Rome. It's called a speech in character. The Greek rhetorical term for this is ethopoeia. And uh, the effect here must have been striking, I think, in this passage. It doesn't quite come out in the English, but Rome and also city in Latin are feminine words. And so Cicero is actually speaking of himself in the feminine grammatically. So here it is. Here's this it's a pretty well-known passage. As it is, your native land, which is the mother of us all, hates you and dreads you, and has long since decided that you have been planning nothing but her destruction. Will you not respect her authority, bow to her judgment, or fear her power? She addresses you, Catiline, and though silent, somehow makes this appeal to you. For some years now, this is him speaking as the city, for some years now you have been behind every crime involved in every scandal. No one but you has killed a host of citizens and oppressed and plundered the allies, unpunished and scot-free. Not only have you been able to ignore the laws and law courts, but you have been able to overturn and shatter them. I tolerated as well as I could those earlier crimes, insupportable as they were, but that I should now be in a state of total terror on your account, that Catiline should be feared at every sound, that no scheme can be hatched against me without assuming your criminal complicity. Truly this is intolerable. Depart then and free me from this dread, says the city of Rome in Cicero's words. And he does that again a little later on. Uh, I won't read the passage, but he does it from the voice of Italy. And uh, so, yes, they did have longer attention spans back then without their TVs and smartphones. But, you know, orators also knew that they had to work to keep people's attention. Okay, so we've talked about Cicero is trying to strip Catiline of his friends. He's trying to divide him from the rest of the Senate to make him seem like an outcast and to get the Senate on his own side, on Cicero's side. And he's trying to build the case here that leaving the city is an admission of guilt at the same time. If Catiline leaves the city, he's guilty. It's proof of his guilt. And to do this is a pretty smart, and Cicero has a major strategic advantage here because he knows from his mole that Catiline was already planning to leave. I mean, maybe after this failed assassination attempt... He might have planned to stay a little longer, to finish the job, who knows. But whatever the case, Cicero has high confidence that this is kind of what Catiline is inclined to do anyway. And so he wants to paint this portrait of leaving his admission of guilt. And so further on in the speech, Cicero 
predicts what Catiline is going to do next. And this is in fact what happened. And he says, Yet there are some in this body who either cannot see what threatens us or pretend that they cannot, who have fed Catiline's hopes by their feeble decisions and put heart into the growing conspiracy by refusing to believe that it existed, who would have influenced many, the merely naive among us, as well as those of ill will, into saying that my action was cruel and tyrannical if I had punished Catiline. As it is, I am sure that if he arrives at Manlius's camp, to which he is on his way, no one will be such a fool as not to see that a conspiracy has been formed, and no one such a traitor as to deny it. So, if Catiline leaves, he's, he's guilty, and all of you, all of you doubters, have to shut up then. That's, what's, that's what he's saying. So, you know that there were a lot of them, right? All right, so once again, imagine what this must have felt like to be Catiline in this moment. And I haven't even gone through like very many of the terrible vitriolic challenges that Cicero throws at him, the, these allegations and charges that he makes against his character. He talks about how he's always sharpening his daggers to destroy the nobility of Rome and sexual deviancy and, and on and on. I mean, what would it be like to have your name dragged through the mud to this extreme extent and in front of the entire leadership of the society that you've tried to make your career in? Imagine that you're on stage, maybe at a, a big trade show for your industry. All your mentors and your colleagues, your acquaintances are there, all the luminaries of the field. And someone makes the case in front of them all that you're literally intent on slaughtering them all. I mean... What's going through Catiline's head? And what do you do if you're Catiline? Stay in Rome, try to clear your name? Give it all up? Decide not to go and lead the 10,000 or so men that have mustered in Tuscany who are counting on a leader to come and relieve them of their debt, open up offices at Rome to the less fortunate, distribute plunder, rewrite the rules at Rome? What do you do? Well, here's, here's Cicero's final word in the oration, the, the, the closing passage. Go forth, Catiline, to your impious and wicked war, and bring sure salvation to the Republic, disaster and ruin upon yourself, and destruction upon those who have joined you in every crime and act of treason. You, Jupiter, whom Romulus established with the same auspices as this city, this is the Jupiter who's temple they're meeting in, whom we justly call the supporter of this city and empire, will keep him and his confederates from your temple and those of the other gods, from the houses and the walls of the city, from the lives and fortunes of all her citizens. And these men, the foes of loyal citizens, public enemies of their native land, plunderers of Italy, men who are joined together in an evil alliance and companionship of crime, these men, alive or dead, you will visit with eternal punishment. So, Cicero brings his speech to a close. Catiline has to say something. And last time we talked about what Sallust says he did, that he, he spoke up and he said, you men know me, the senators, you all know me, you know my family. Why would I imagine anything 
so heinous a crime as Cicero is suggesting here. And here this foreigner, this, this resident alien Cicero, is trying to divide us, this careerist, etc. But he was shouted down. He had already lost before he even tried to speak. The Senate recoiled from him, and they left him abandoned. And that was the power of Cicero's speech against Catiline. It appeared clear enough to Catiline, in that moment at least, that he had no other option. And so he departed from the city that very night to test fortune, for better or worse, to see what the gods really willed. So those are the highlights from Cicero's first Catalinarian oration. I've skipped a lot, but I think you get the gist. I do recommend reading it sometime. It might take you an hour or so. We'll be back next time for part three. If you enjoyed this, please leave a review. It really helps us out. Sign up for our newsletter at ancientlifecoach.com for more highlights and insights. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.